Calling all birders. Join us from May 18th to the 21st, 2023 for the Great Salt Lake Bird Festival. Don't miss the premier event for both amateur and seasoned bird watchers. Enjoy workshops, keynote presentations, and over 200 species of birds. Start planning your trip by visiting greatsaltlakebirdfest.com. That's greatsaltlakebirdfest.com. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick. I have, well, I guess it's a correction, a core agendum to issue this week. A few weeks ago, I talked a bit about the Winter Finch Report and how my interpretation of it was that the Winter Finch flight was going to be a little on the light side this year. Well, as it turns out, I am evidently not great at reading the tea leaves, even when those tea leaves are more or less spelled out for me by Finch forecast professional Tyler Hoare. I said something along the lines of the prospect of a major Finch eruption being about as likely as a limpkin in Buffalo, New York. And, ah, uh, well, time makes fools of us all. Evening gross beaks are doing the thing this year. Their numbers still boosted by a massive spruce budworm outbreak in eastern Canada, interestingly enough, brought on by the global coronavirus pandemic. COVID-19 prevented the annual application of anti-budworm pesticides, and consequently, the budworms proliferated in places that they had been kept at bay for decades, which was great news for the budworm-eating songbirds and not great news for the logging industry. But honestly, they are not a very sympathetic aspect of all this. Well, you know, at least someone came out of the coronavirus pandemic looking good. Good on you, gross beaks. Evening grosbeaks, the undisputed royalty of winter finchdom, have been seen as far south this fall as Tennessee, Missouri, North Carolina. In the east, they are coming out of the mountains. In the west, too, there are records into west and even central Texas. To be fair to me, even the finch forecast couldn't predict the sort of southward movement we've seen so far in the latter half of 2022. Tyler Hoare predicted southern Canada and the border states but noted that they had, at the time, been seen in Pennsylvania and that the possibility of a major movement was there. And he noted that if we do start seeing these birds farther south, as as we have, some can be expected to move as they did in fall 2020, notoriously. Famously, a very good year for evening grosbeaks for a lot of us. And for what it's worth, the map for October and November 2022 looks a lot like the map for October and November 2020. So fingers crossed. I hope that anyone I intentionally misled about the status of the winter finch eruption is treated to a flock of evening grosbeaks outside their window. That that would be some good karma. On the show this week, last week I was out for most of the period because of Thanksgiving. This week I'm giving you an encore presentation. It is an interview from our second year featuring recent ABA Tropic Bird Award and indeed MacArthur Genius Grant recipient J. Drew Lanham. Congrats for that, by the way. The interview I did with him and J.B. Brumfeld this past summer made me think it might be nice to run this one again when I got the chance. At the time, Drew was not yet an ABA Award or MacArthur Genius Grant recipient, just a best-selling memoirist and an academic, nothing big, you know, but as insightful, passionate, and thoughtful as ever. That is coming to you right after this week's Redbirds. <laughs> This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of November 2022. One quick update and a correction from a report I made a couple weeks ago since 
I am in the mood, tis the season. I'd originally said that the Eurasian Marsh Harrier seen in New Jersey was not the same individual seen in Maine earlier this season. That is not true. They were the same bird. Apparently, the second sighting was a little further along in its molt, which caused the confusion. I am not sure which is more likely, two Marsh Harriers on the East Coast or one that traveled from Maine to New Jersey and was spotted in both places, but both seem pretty unlikely to me. To the new birds, we have two first to report for the period. Mississippi makes the big list of states and provinces that have recorded new birds in 2022 with the discovery of a great kiskadee in coastal Harrison County. Great kiskadee has been creeping eastward along the Gulf Coast for several years now with increasing records in Louisiana. It seems like Alabama and Florida are the next dominoes to fall. They don't have much farther to go. And in Pennsylvania, a first record hermit warbler was seen in Delaware County with relatively recent records for both Maryland and New York. This had to be one that was on Pennsylvania birders shortlists. Hermit warbler is perhaps one of the least common western warbler vagrants in the east, but there is, in fact, a cluster of records in New England and a little bit south. Those are the highlights of the week, but for the full list, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash rba. You can also follow along with all the Rare Bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook and in ABA community. Birding has been described by my guest today, no less, as one of the whitest things you can do, and it's it's hard to argue with that. One of the issues that the birding community has been reckoning with for the last several years, especially, has been our relative lack of diversity, at least in terms of black and brown faces in the field, and how we can encourage a broader coalition of nature enthusiasts to join us and to share that joy of birding. Dr. Drew Lanham is, among other things, a distinguished professor of wildlife ecology at Clemson University at Clemson, South Carolina. He sits on the boards of both National Audubon and the American Birding Association, and his memoir, The Home Place, Memoirs of a Colored Man's Love Affair with Nature, was published last year. He was also profiled in the August-September issue of Garden and Gun magazine about his experience as a Black professional in the birding world. Thanks, Drew, for taking the time to talk with me today. Thanks for having me, Nate. Glad to be here. So let's kind of start at the beginning, you know, your origin story. Tell me how it was that birding in nature first got a hold of you. Well, I, you know, it's uh, it's sort of nature and nurture, right? I, I grew up rurally, which is hard not to do in South Carolina, to be honest about it. You know, I'm, I'm a child of the, of the 70s, really, and so... Edgefield, South Carolina is where uh, my taproot was put down, um, where I was uh, sort of uh, hatched and fledged, I guess you could say. And so, you know, that environment, of course, led to some of some of who I am just being in the woods and having the opportunity to be uh, in nature sort of constantly when you're going from I was going from my grandmother Mamatha's place to my parents place. There were open fields and woods and overgrown ditches full of bobwhite quail. And, and so, yeah, that was, that was a part of it. And then when I would, I would get to my parents' house, finally, after wandering through all of that, there were only two and a half television channels to sort of distract me. And so, you know, that was important. And then having, having parents, both of whom um, were science teachers, was a critical portion of that um, of that nature and nurture, and so they encouraged all of us, um, me and my my three siblings. They encouraged us all to explore, and then I think a critical part of that was that we depended on nature so much. I mean, we were farmers, and so almost all of the food that ended up on the table 
was stuff that we grew from the cattle and the hogs and the chickens um, to the vegetables uh, in the garden and the fruits and the orchards and picking wild blackberries for blackberry cobbler. And uh, my father occasionally hunted, not a whole lot, but occasionally hunted. He fished more than he hunted. All of our water came from the springs around us. And so it was this total sort of immersion that brought me to that place. But birds, man, birds were the, you know, they were the proverbial cherry on top of the the, the, the cake. I, I guess they'd be the tanager at the top of the tree um, in this case, and that they were, birds were going places that I wanted to go. They were doing things that I wanted to do, especially flying. I, I dreamt of being a pilot and that failing, I, I thought that maybe the next best thing was to, was to be a bird. And so I spent a lot of time climbing up in trees, not just to see birds, but launching myself out of trees and off of roofs to, to try to fly. I always say that Wiley Coyote was great inspiration for me because <laughs> the TV that I did watch, I watched Wiley Coyote ingloriously fail um, at at capturing the Roadrunner, which which incidentally I knew could fly, but that would rather run. I knew the Roadrunner could fly, and I always wished on those cartoons that that the Roadrunner would. But um, <laughs> so Wiley Coyote, seeing him fail time and time again, I thought that I would be able in some of my wanderings to overcome Wiley's failures. And so I tried to fly. And so birds were, were sort of a, a conduit for imagination, but also, you know, I encountered them every day, every day they were around me. So, you know, it was almost, uh, I think in some ways inevitable that I ended up where I am. Yeah. And you turn it into your, your profession in addition to being a personal interest. How did that, how did that come about? Really? <laughs> It was a, you know, it was sort of a long, a long journey for me. I, um, you know, being a, a kid of color, being a black kid who was decent at math and science, everyone thought that, that I should be an engineer because at the time, um, in the STEM disciplines, as they're known now, science, technology, engineering, and math, that if you were good at math and science, then of course you wanted to be an engineer because it paid well. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so... I went to school on an engineering scholarship, a full four-year ride, uh, DuPont scholar, majoring in mechanical engineering, because I was told, well, if you want to do the bird thing, you know, you're going to need money. So why not make money as an engineer? And then you can do the bird thing on the side. And so I tried that for about three and a half years at Clemson, where I work now. And uh, and it was really a, a sort of slow and painful death. Um, heart-wise for me, really, because, you know, I was doing okay, Nate, but I mean, I was very dispassionate about being an engineer. And I think the last thing you want in this world is a dispassionate mechanical engineer who's responsible (laughs) for designing things that you ride in or fly in or uh, drive over. So, so yeah, I, you know, all of that time, I still had these dreams at least of being immersed in nature and birds. And so that long sort of circuitous migratory route that I was taking towards being an ornithologist finally ended, ended up in me changing my major to zoology and, 
uh, eventually falling under the tutelage of Dr. Sidney Gotro. Oh, yeah, the, the radar bird guy. Yeah, yeah. He's, uh, you know, sort Doppler of the godfather radar, yeah. of radar ornithology. And Sid was great about um, taking us out birding. There, were, there was a group of grad students who um, I got to hang out with and spending time with them afield and learning, um, honing my birding skills was was new life to me. It was like being reborn. And so that's how I ended up here, you know, talking to you as a professional birder and ornithologist. In what ways has, has being a, a Black American influenced the trajectory of your birding career? Well, it's, um, you know, birding is um, is life to me. It's, it's part of, of just who I am. And so because... I am, you know, proudly in this this black skin, and as a as a black American, it it affects me in some ways because it's the life that I live. The life that I live is is impacted in many ways, and so, you know, I'm I'm always making references to range maps, Nate, because I think it's instructive for us to think about where we are in sort of space and time, but also in social context. And, and thinking about that range map and being a black birder, it, it means that there are, are, are issues and situations that present themselves differently to me than they might, um, you know, a white birder um, or, or someone else. And so, you know, instances of, uh, of bias and racism um, that present themselves and sometimes it's issues that you think are presenting themselves, but they may not present themselves. And so right. um, I spend time uh, at times thinking about things that other folks might not have to think about. So, you know, for example, you know, I, I write in my, in my memoir about doing a breeding bird survey and having a stop near um, a house where there was a Confederate flag. And you know, I mean, it's the breeding bird survey. It's not like I can move the point. It's not like I can <laughs> yeah, skip right. the point. And so instead of being able to concentrate solely on the birds that I see or hear in that uh, span of time that I'm doing that, that point, I'm, I'm constantly thinking about the flag and, and why someone would have it there and whether or not I'm supposed to be there. And if they find me out there with binoculars and a clipboard, birding what happens to me and, and and so you know that's that's real and and having that present itself sort of time and time again and not just here in the south but in other places you know being being on the national bison range in montana and just sort of on the one hand being just absolutely stunned by the beauty of the bitter roots and hearing western meadowlarks and long-billed curlews, but then on my way back to Missoula, having a huge truck roll up behind me with the biggest Confederate flag I've ever seen, um, waving from the bed of the truck gave me pause um, and sort of, for the moment anyway, erased all the birds and the bison from my brain. So, you know, that's it, it impacts me in sort of those kind of uh, horrifically spectacular <laughs> ways. Um, but then in, in sort of more subtle ways too, I think you would, you would love for what we do as birders to 
to be more diverse, to be more inclusive. And um, I think that's happening in, in some ways. But, you know, it's when birding, when it's not just your 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 avocation, but your vocation, and it's all wound up into who you are and what your life is, then you're going to be who you are and not only how you appear, but sometimes um, what you think and, and, and your lifestyle can be impacted by, you know, those other portions of your life. So it's hard for me these days to separate being a birder from being Drew. I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, some of these ideas are, are ones that you've sort of expressed in a piece you wrote for Orion magazine a few years ago, Nine Rules for the Blackbird Watcher sort of a darkly funny exploration of race and how it affects birding in ways that, you know, someone like me, a white birder, I don't always think about interactions with, with law enforcement, you know, are not that uncommon. It's a hassle for me. It's something to laugh about later even, but it's sort of existential for you. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it, it, it is. And, um, you know, certainly, certainly appreciate the, the job that um, you know, the ethical law enforcement, most of the folks out there do who are, are trying to keep us safe and to serve and protect, so to speak. But then, yeah, there are those incidences. I'm, I am constantly thinking, I tell people I have a, I have a police cruiser gestalt. I mean, I can pick them out in the dark, <laughs> the headlights, right, yeah. the stance. I sort of know it's sort right. of like, you know, I would imagine that, um, you know, backyard birds, my Carolina chickadees and tufted titmice, they kind of know where the Sharpies and the coops are. They, 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 <laughs> right. they kind of have a That's sense, a you know, that in that yard over there, that if you're slow or you linger too long, you know, at the tube feeder, that bad things could happen. Um, and, and so that's, that's more energy that maybe I have to spend as a person in my skin and my black skin than someone might have to spend in uh, thinking about otherwise. So, Again, that's why I say it's it's something that I constantly think about. And this, again, this range map context that I'm writing about now in in the new work, I I'm constantly I'm literally checking out the maps. I'm 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 trying to understand where it is that not only I am, but where I'm going. Um, is it safe for me to go in this place or that place? Um, do I go alone, or do I try to make sure that I take a white friend along with me so that um so that the flock is a you know is that we're watching out for one another so th those are all kinds of things that um i think about and that nine rules for the black bird watcher that piece was i i, I don't think i ever expected it to go sort of as far and wide as it did but i, I remember the editor from Orion writing me and asking me if I would consider doing a piece. And of course I said, sure. And, and she said, well, I'll give you, you know, a couple of weeks, you know, to get this done. And 45 minutes later, I'd sent her the draft and she was sort of amazed that I had done it that quickly. And I said, you know, this is, these are all things that I've been thinking about and really sort of things that I live. Yeah. It's, it, it was written as, uh, you know, really, really sort of hyperbole and, 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 and in the way that uh, you write those sorts of things, but they're all things that I'd thought about and things that I'd lived. Yeah. Do you think that the relative lack of representation among non-white people in the birding community is a function of 
birding is an avocation or is it just sort of a you know a broader sort of societal issue that spills over into birding i you know i think it's it's broader you know um i, I think it's a broader issue that sort of spills over um and, and it's not to say that that there aren't things that we could do or that have been done in birding that are that are culpable for the spillover you know there's i think there's there are always ways to prevent to present dams of of inclusion sort of um and you know inclusion it means to let others in to invite them in in ways um but you know there there are barriers that have been there sort of subconsciously i think for birding that that now i hope that we're becoming more aware of i know with with aba we're we're trying to do that and getting some of those barriers down and I think some of those, for example, have been in thinking about birding and expanding it to, to different communities, obviously, but making making birding relevant to who it is that we are as human beings. So, you know, we've enjoyed birds for as long as we've we've been around for all the millions of years um, that that Homo sapiens and and in all of our forms have, have been around. When, when we think about birds, again, you know, my sort of origins in thinking about flight and being inspired by bird song and bird flight, people have been inspired by, by birds for all of our history um, and before that. So, you know, I think lowering some of the barriers include broadening birding to help us understand how birds interact with the environment and what they tell us about the environments that we live in. So, I, I can't necessarily I wouldn't I wouldn't go to Flint, Michigan, for example, and try to convince folks who don't have clean drinking water in some communities that they ought to be watching birds before they consider clean drinking water. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, right. but the issue is that we're sharing water, that that birds and humans are sharing water. We're sharing air. We're sharing soil. And. You know, all of those environmental issues that we're facing now that are, quite frankly, um, are under assault, really, um, are all things that we should be concerned about. And so if we're watching birds, whether for sport or for the understanding how our lives are going to be impacted, birds become important and critical things to all of us. I mean, Rachel Carson told us that all those years ago. And so the, the way that I'm trying to expand birding anyway is for for that relevance to move beyond just, you know, the joy of, of listening and the joy of watching, which is soul food for many of us, to move it to this 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 different realm of um of understanding that everybody has a bird story and that those bird stories make those creatures relevant to our lives. And, yeah, and that point. somehow that if we have this common plight in our lives, birds and humans, then people are going to care more for birds. They're going to care more for the habitats that birds exist in because those habitats and the environments are things that we share, clean air, clean water, clean soil. And that if we fight for those things, guess what? There are more birds to watch and there are more places to exactly. watch birds. Yeah. And there are more people watching birds with this intent of us being together and sharing this this earth that we're on yeah i totally agree i think i think we can take it as a given that you know most birders really want birding to be more inclusive but don't always know how to help or act you know as we seek to sort of 
I don't know, for, for lack of a better term, you know, kind of expand the franchise of birding to, to more diverse communities of people. What do you think birding groups or, or local communities can do to sort of appeal to those communities that we've sort of historically had trouble reaching? Well, great question. And that's a, you know, it's a hard question. The first thing is to, um, is for us to put the binoculars down for a minute or two and really see where we are. And, and understand what's around you and understand that birding can happen anywhere and that sometimes um, it's not just birding. Sometimes it's bird watching and literally bird watching, watching a single bird, <laughs> right? you know, helping someone understand or not even helping them understand, understanding how they see birds, I think is a better way to go about it. Almost no one ignores a cardinal. You may call it a red bird, and for the sake of appreciation, the name isn't important at that moment. Just that it's this, this brilliant thing, this brilliant living thing that just flies through your line of sight. So when when people who don't have long life lists or know the proper names for every bird, um, when when they see the bird and revel in the bird revel in the bird with them, understand how they see the bird and how the bird fits into um, their world and their environment. And, and so then we become watchers along with them and not people who seek to lead them in the direction that we would have them go. So, so that means expanding the definition of what birding is. And, and again, I sort of go back and forth. I, you know, right over my office door, a grad student from long ago gave me this this uh, needlepoint, and it says "bird watcher." And I'm a bird watcher, you know. I'm a birder, but I'm also a bird watcher. And so I think expanding what birding is and giving folks um, the permission um, to come in, um, opening that door and saying, you know what, we are we are a big tent, and there's room for you if you're sitting in your backyard feeding birds and naming them as you would and naming them, you know, Charlie, the Cardinal and, and Tracy, the Titmouse, or whether you are um, watching um, birds uh, in an urban park and uh, pigeons are a part of your everyday, that begins to broaden the conversation of appreciation. And once you begin to broaden that, Nate, I think you begin to invite people in in different ways, you know, that you can that you can be out there in chucks and uh, skinny jeans and a T-shirt and you're fine, that you don't have to have truly specialized equipment to do it, that you don't have to break the bank for binoculars, that there are programs out there and people who will lend you binoculars or give you binoculars, let you use theirs so that suddenly the world becomes closer in all sorts of ways. So, you know, there's an old saying in wildlife um, education, and maybe it goes beyond that, but it's, uh, you know, reach one, teach one kind of deal. And if we can encourage our fellow birders and bird watchers to find someone that's different than you, maybe they're younger Maybe they're older, maybe they're of a different gender or non-gender designation, maybe they're browner, <laughs> maybe they're blacker, maybe they're something or different or than you are, 
seeing the world through trying to see the world through that person's eyes and converging range maps, I think is a useful exercise. And it's something that we can do on a daily basis without thinking about, wow, how do I get thousands of more people into birding? Or how do I get thousands of more people just into appreciating nature? No, turn that on its head and think about how can I be with one other different person in some place that we can share birds, that we can share nature, that we can talk about things that unite us as opposed to dividing us. And in that way, I think birding and bird watching has so much potential to be such a healing force for so much of what's disruptive right now in our world. It's clear that, you know, for you, that birding is something that is you know, foundational, this, this defining part of who you are, so that you're willing to put up with potentially dangerous or uncomfortable situations, you know, dealing with the hassle. How do we make the case that birding is worth it to a diverse coalition of people? Maybe you've sort of already answered this question, but, you know, I always sort of feel like, you know, we're asking people to do these potentially uncomfortable, maybe even dangerous things. You know, how do we get them to push through? How do we get them to, to help make that better world? Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a great question again, Nate. And I think, again, for me, um, it comes down to, you know, there, there, we, you know, we, we talk, we hear a lot these days about the Constitution and, and what that means. Um, and I always think what stands out to me are these inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You know, birds are life to me. Um, they, they are exemplars of liberty, and I'm not happy without them. So, you know, in, in that trifecta, then all of our lives are bound up and understanding that their lives are our lives, that as birds are free and abundantly so, that there's a better chance for us to be free and abundantly so. And that hearing birds sing, seeing birds fly makes people happy in ways that, I mean, that's that three letter word of awe. If we're willing to give up those things, if we're willing to give up, you know, our lives, our freedom and our chances at happiness, then we're willing to give up birds. And I, for one, am not willing to do that. And most of the people I know, whether they call themselves birders or not, aren't willing to give up on life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And all three of those things are bound up in birds. All you got to do is step back for a minute and watch Watch a, watch a kid watching a bird fly or seeing um, someone who's learned how to use their binoculars, seeing some brilliant thing close up and watching a bird sing, hearing that bird belt out its song, you know, a prairie warbler song climbs to the top of a chromatic scale from, you know, the top of a young loblolly pine tree and watching somebody watch that, that's joy. So it is, to me, it's foundational. So, you know, as a, as a black man in this country, um, <laughs> you know, there, there are days that I, I feel like um, I walk out of the house, I'm putting my life on the line. Well, I'm not going to cloister myself in my home because of the risk of living. Life is a risk. Take it. The alternatives aren't as, aren't as grand. So, again, I see all that through 
you know, from the the heightened vantage point of birds. And so I'm still imagining life from this altitude that allows me to get above and beyond some of the, the stuff that's not so nice on the ground. And I can get above that, even if just for a little bit, and it helps me get on to that next moment in the day. And before you know it, I've lived another day and there's another chance at happiness and liberty and I'm all good. All right. My guest is Dr. Drew Lanham, academic writer, birder. The link to his profile in Garden and Gun Magazine is in the show notes. You can also find his memoir, The Home Place, wherever the best books are sold. Thanks for chatting with me, Drew. This was this was great. Yeah, man. I, this is this is this has been great. I'm I'm just I'm really thankful for the opportunity, Nate, to um, to talk about it. It's um, uh, on this end, it's hard sometimes to when I start talking about it to to stay in control of my emotions because birds birds are birds mean a lot. I know they mean a, a lot to you and to our friends um, out there. So um, I want to do all of, all I can to to keep birds around and to keep um, the people around who appreciate birds now and in the future to make that audience grow. Yeah. Well, thanks again. Thank you, Nate, very much. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. The ABA produces many free resources for the birding community, including this podcast. And all we ask in return is that you help support them by joining the ABA. It's more than just support too. You also get our magazines, discounts to our partners, opportunities to travel with us, and also the feeling that you're contributing to a bigger and better birding community in the US, Canada, and beyond. For more information about all of that, you can check us out at aba.org slash join. I have some shout outs to make this week. Gabrielle Garneau and family of Jackson, Tennessee. Nanetta Lowe and family of Tahlequah, Oklahoma. And Adam Mullally and family of Havertown, Pennsylvania, all of whom recently joined the American Birding Association and noted this podcast as their reason for doing so. Thank you so much for that. Welcome to the ABA. Executive director of the ABA and executive producer of this podcast is Nikki Belmonte, who refers to her local crew of cyanocitas at her feeder as the home jays. Technical production is by John Lowry, who has a special spot with a double-crested cormorant's roost. He likes to call the corn place. Additional help with social media comes from George Munoz, who notes, I, I did not know this, that John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur, in addition to the award, they're also avid waterfowl breeders working on a super smart species they call the MacArthur Genius Brand. You can find us online at ABA.org on social media. Most everywhere is American Birding Association on Twitter. We are at ABA. I apologize once again for my terrible interpretation of the winter finch eruption, which one might be inclined to call a winter finch forecast. Questions, comments can come to podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nate Swake. Thank you so much for listening. Stay healthy. We'll catch you next week.